Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Hui Huin of the Alabama Woodworker, and I'm joined by, well, Guy Dunlop's not here, but Guy is off on a vacation right now, a much-needed one, so he will be back next week or in two weeks. But I've got Brian Schmidt with me. Hey, Brian. Good evening. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing great. All right. This podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community, that's you guys, and give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. We also have a Patreon account, and right now we have one level, and we're simply asking for a small donation just to try to cover the cost of bringing you this podcast. Also, uh, stay tuned to the end of the show to hear about what we have going on in our own shops. With that, let's get right into it. Brian, you got the first question because can't be me. I'm the host. That's true. Oh, I got first, you know, first on the T, Brian Schmidt. All right. Mm -hmm. This first question is from Peter, who is Mr. Downing Woodworking on Instagram. And Peter writes saying that uh, he thought this might be a fun question. If you aren't familiar with the phrase, the cobbler's children have no shoes, it often means you're taking care of others' needs before your own. But it can also be used to mean something that everyone expects of you in your field or craft that you have never done. For example, I always hear that everyone's first project is a cutting board, but I was in the craft for years before I made one and I've yet to cut a mortise and tenon. So what have, what haven't you made that everyone would think you had, or what skill do you not have that it would be assumed you do? Peter. Well, it's a tricky question for me because I have, nobody thinks I have any skills to begin with. So the bar has been set uh, fairly low, but I'll, I'll just do it from a, a self-reflection standpoint. So for as much time as I've spent in my workshop making sawdust, I would, I would think that I had done dovetails by now, but I have cut zero dovetails in my life. And it's not because I don't have a dovetail, um, guide or the proper saws or anything like that. It's just time consuming to learn, I guess. Um, practice, and there's a lot of practice at, and learning that goes into that, or at least that's what I've built up in my own head and in the season of life that, that our family's in with three young children. Uh, it's just hard to find time to do that, especially when I have commission, commission builds that are, uh, lined up, uh, waiting to be done. So for me, it would be, it would be dovetails. We, what about you? Well, well, let's, let's, let's expound a little bit about on that about dovetails because first off let's just say this i am not saying that a dovetail joint is not a strong joint it is absolutely a strong joint and it's a legitimate joint but there are so many other joints that are equally as strong and while they may not be as strong as dovetails work and function just as well one of those examples is dowels and I know plenty of people that have made drawers and carcasses with dowels, and they're perfectly fine, and biscuits and all those things. But my thought behind the whole dovetail thing is that it is more decorative than it is, well, it is strong. I just said that, right? But it's more of a decorative thing, and I think it's more of a personal accomplishment, particularly when it comes to hand-cut dovetails. And if that's what the client wants... Uh, to me, there I, I don't find that there's anything wrong with machine cut dovetails, whether it be on the bandsaw or the table saw or doing it with a router jig. It's perfectly fine. Uh, at least that's for me. I guess what I'm saying to you, Brian, is I don't think you're missing out on anything. <laughs> Maybe you're just missing out on the you know waxing poetic about woodworking while doing dovetails. And you know what? I like doing that too, and that's perfectly fine. There are times where I'm into that. But for me, a lot of times, particularly when it comes to client builds and I'm on a specific like timeline, I don't know. I'm going for a domino or I'll go with like your general, uh, even hand-cut mortise and tenon, right? I I'll probably end up doing that before I do dovetails. Most of the time, I'm doing dovetails because I'm trying to stay true to form in some way, you know? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. okay, here, here's, what's your, here's what's, what's your thing, my thing. So I can't say cutting board because I made one not too long ago out of scraps because I was getting a whole bunch of crap from folks saying that I had all these scraps and I just gave them away or I just burned them. So finally, I just made a cutting board. 
I didn't feel like I, I don't know. To me, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't do much for me. You know, it's the cutting you're, board. It looks you're fine. Finally, you're finally a real woodworker. Will you? I know. I made, I made a cutting board. <laughs> uh, but, and it's hard for me to say because I've tried a lot of different things. I, I haven't mastered a lot of things, but I would say I'm not really that great of a turner. I have turned. I do have a lathe. I probably have a lathe more capable than I am. Um, but I do some turnings, but the turnings I've done have been like small knobs, a column, small spindles. You know, it, it just doesn't do it for me. And, and if I had more time, I might actually spend more time to learn how to turn. Yeah. I am okay turner. I'm not even a decent turner. I wouldn't even say that I'm a good turner. I, I just, I know how to do it. So I'll do it out of necessity. Maybe. I don't know. I, I I sort of feel like at least now in my woodworking, woodworking has become or learning a new skill has to meet one of two things: a necessity, you know, I have a client build and I have to learn how to do it, or out of uh, getting pleasure, right? Yeah. Personal pleasure out of it, right? Yeah. Um, for me, right now, my time to allow for personal pleasure is very limited. And so, yeah, so, so for me, it's like, it's, it's really got to be out of necessity that I, I sort of explore things, but I know the things that I'm good at and I know the things that I'm able to do quite quickly. So I kind of stick with those things. Yeah. Yeah. My wife, my wife has been, uh, clamoring for a jewelry box, um, Mm -hmm. like a really nice, um, jewelry box. So might dovetail it. That, well, and that, I've kind of been holding out, um, waiting for, for that to be the case and to um, kind of do that all, all in one fell swoop, knowing that it'll, it'll be a piece that stays around our house for a long time. And I, I was like looking back on those things that you built early on in, in your woodworking career so you can reflect on hopefully progress that you've made. So that's, yeah, that'll be it for me. You know, I feel like the best time to kind of hunker down and do those sort of skill building type things is really during the holidays when things kind of slow down a little bit and you're spending, then again, you're spending a lot of time with family, so you might not have that much time, right? So, but I I sort of feel like the times that I've been able to kind of hunker down and try something that I want to try or a skill that I want to try to expand, uh, expound on has been typically the holidays. Nice. Well, Peter, that's good. Uh, good. Good question. Hopefully, that provides a little perspective about where we are. Um, you want to take? Well, I guess you do want to take the next one since Guy's not here. <laughs> <laughs> so this is from Will uh, Corson. I think that's how I yeah. say it. Corson. Yeah. Will Corson. Hey guys, I appreciate your podcast. I always look forward on list forward to listening to the latest episodes. I am a hobbyist woodworker who has done some commission builds. As my hobby is turning into a side hustle more and more, I'm wondering at what point do I make it official? I live in Nashville, Tennessee, and there are there's a strong market for custom woodworking. Whilst I do not need the money, the thought of fueling my hobby and having the extra cash seems viable. I feel the same way. Have any of you become an LLC or set up a DBA? Are there benefits on doing so even if my business would stay relatively small again, love the podcast and thank you for your contribution to the community. God bless Will. Well, Will, thank you for the, for the question. Um, I am actually an LLC. My LLC is Alabama woodworking and I do business as Alabama woodworker and I am registered locally as a business with my, uh, with my city, Madison, Alabama. But I became an LLC and I filed for the first year this past year as an LLC and I received no benefit from it. There was no actual benefit to being an LLC. In fact, actually, I could have just been a DBA registered with my local, uh, with my city as a business and just filed everything under my personal taxes. And I think that would would have been a better first step because before then I was doing projects and a lot of my projects weren't, I mean, 
barely over $500. Um, and there ha anything that was over a certain amount, uh, over $500, I did file under my taxes, my personal taxes. Um, but I did become a registered LLC and it didn't really do me any benefit because I'm doing about four or five commissions a year if I'm lucky. Uh, so this past year, it just ha so happened that I did four. And this year, I think I'm going to be doing three. At least that's what I've got scheduled on the books. I don't know. Uh, you know, some one of these commissions is kind of expensive. About I'm quoted about $5,000. So it, it's high. And it's definitely one that I would uh, file on my taxes. At least I'm legally obligated to. And I do do that just because I don't want to get audited in any way. Um, and I'm not a scofflaw, so I do that. Um, <laughs> Good word. But... But the, but the point is, is I don't have to be an LLC to do that business and to say, hey, I made money outside of my day job yeah. and I just file it that way. Brian, how do you do it? And how would you recommend Will go about this? Yeah. I, I feel like this is this is the point in the podcast where we where we put the official disclaimer in and that neither we nor I are lawyers and neither of us are qualified to provide legal or tax advice. So take all of, all of what I'm about to say with a grain of salt. Um, the, uh, I'm not set up as an LLC and like you mentioned, we paying all of that on personal income tax return. It, yeah. It's doing it the right way is the only way as far as I'm concerned, Will. So, I find your, find your, yeah, just like we similar echoing what you said, we I, my advice is to to find a local accountant, somebody who has helped other um, other companies or other enterprise. I, maybe enterprise would be a better way. Somebody who's done small business, you know, accountant uh, accountancy type work and might be able to provide some some legal advice to you as well, or at least guidance. Um, and, and consult with him or her or their firm uh, on the best way to do it. Cause it, it can vary from state to state and city to city uh, yeah. of what the various requirements are. Some of the best advice I got when, when I was getting started was around the insurance and to go ahead and get um, that, that insurance policy for the business, uh, even if operating, um, you know, more as a, as a DBA under your own, personal identity. And for me, especially with installed work, that was really, really important. I think the the horror story that somebody had told me was um, an enterprising young man had, had gone out and he was, he might've been a painter, let's say, I don't remember the specifics. And he was, he was doing a fairly small job in this multi-million dollar house. And they just had these brand new, beautiful white plush carpets put in. Oh my goodness. Yeah. The smallest amount of red paint on this carpet couldn't be cleaned. They had to tear out all of this carpet, put it all back in. And he had absolutely no business insurance um, yep. to cover to cover the damage uh, that was incurred to the client's property and it bankrupted him and his family. So, um, yeah, you bring up a good point about insurance. I mean, having being a business and having the benefit of being able to apply for liability insurance as a business yeah. is, is a huge benefit if you're doing install work, but if you're doing standalone pieces, yeah, you know, bringing in pieces that are already painted, uh, would yeah. that necessarily and again we're not lawyers we're not tax yeah. attorneys we're none of those things for me as a standalone i i don't have business insurance i have my homeowner's insurance and and that's it right yeah. um could somebody sue me sure they could sue me how much could they get out i i'm not exactly sure right like is it likely that a a dress, a chest of drawers, a low, low boy chest of drawers that I built could possibly tip over and crush a baby. And God forbid that baby gets injured and or dies. Am I liable for that? Yeah, probably so. Probably so. Right. Yep. What's the likelihood of that? <sighs> Probably kind of low. Right. But again, we're not tax attorneys. We're not lawyers. We don't know anything about litigation, but I think if you're doing small goods or small standalone pieces, the risk might not be as great as if you were to doing installs. Yeah. 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 
Okay. Awesome. All right. Consult an attorney. Consult a Consult an attorney. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Write it out the last like seven minutes and just boil it down to call your local your account, account local accountant or local lawyer. <laughs> yeah. All right, Brian, you got the next one, buddy. All right. This is from Tanner. And I'm I'm not gonna try to pronounce Tanner's last name because I'm afraid I'll insult him with how badly I mispronounce it. But Tanner's from Minnesota. So Tanner, you know who you are. And he says, Tanner from Minnesota, new podcast listener, on my way to pick up my first table saw. A Jet JWTS-10. Excited to restart woodworking. My question is, you have $1,000 and what pieces of equipment are you going to buy to start woodworking? Right now, he has the table saw, some general hand tools, um, like a drill, impact driver, jigsaw, circular saw, a sawzall, a couple finished nailers, and a small pancake air compressor. And the other piece of information Tanner provided is that he's a new homeowner as well. Congratulations. Yep. Um, and he's looking to tackle new siding on the garage, general paint and trim in various rooms, final plank flooring, and eventually um, maybe even milling his own stair parts um, mm. from two large maples that need to come down in fear of crushing the garage. So thank you for your thoughts and time. So I'm going to approach this question from the perspective of a new homeowner. Yeah. Because that's really when, when I got into woodworking was when we bought a, our house and it needed quite a bit of fixing up and, one thing led to another. It started with, you know, a drill and then a circular saw and then a miter saw uh, and, and things spiraled out of control from there. Um, they, but always this, they always do. Yeah. But I mean, I built I built a lot of furniture, small furniture, but furniture nonetheless, starting out with not much more than than a miter saw um, that like a finish nailer, like an 18 gauge finish nailer with an air compressor. You can get those probably at Harbor Freight for, you know, under $200 for the package deal, if I had to guess. Um, so I would, it, that, that'll allow you to do trim. It'll allow you to do crown molding. It'll allow you to do some of the siding uh, in your garage, like you were talking about. Yeah. Um, and then obviously having a drill, I think is, is just a, a helpful thing to have it'll also the drill will also allow you to start doing pocket hole joinery so yeah. one of the other tools i would recommend is maybe a uh, like a pocket hole jig uh, craig makes a good one and they have a few options depending on your budget and how much you want to spend on it um so that's kind of that's that's where that's where i'd focus we yeah. what do you think $1,000, I think you could go about getting a used jointer and a planer. Sorry, my dogs are going crazy because they see somebody outside. That's just the way they are. That's the, yep. that's the way they are. Dogs are the dogs. They love the dogs. Sometimes don't like the dogs, but love them nonetheless. Yep. Um, no, a planer and or, and or uh, jointer. And, uh, and I think you could probably get those on the used market for both of those things for under $1,000 uh, combined. Um, I've seen the DeWalt 735. I think it's the four post, whatever that one is. I've seen that for about $500. Um, and I've seen some like small six inch, uh, joiners out there. I have seen like the uh, small short Delta joiners, uh, seen a couple bench top joiners that you can get, uh, for again, these two items combined for under a thousand dollars, but I think the benefit of doing that is while they are small and you're not going to be able to do like big planks and tables and things like that, you can do a lot of cope and stick joinery with it. You're, you're, you're going to be able to do a lot of like shiplap type stuff, which I think goes along with yeah. like home improvement DIY type stuff. Um, you know, just being able to resurface some of those planks and, and maybe just start off with like skip planning and particularly if you're doing kind of siding where you don't need everything to be like perfectly parallel and flat, but you're doing maybe some, t- uh, uh, excuse me, wood, uh, hardwood siding and whatnot. And so you have a little wiggle room for variations and things like you can kind of get away with just having a planer and skip planning them yep. going from one side and then flip, go to the other side. Yeah. It's going to be potato chip in potato chip out but for the most part. It's going to be relatively flat material that you're sending through that planer anyway. So I probably would go with a planer first and maybe a joiner second. And I'd probably go with a six inch and maybe just your 12 inch bench top planer. And like I said, you can get something used. It doesn't have to be, 
you know, top of the line, powermatic jet, you know, whatever, you know, type joiner. But getting getting one second hand, I think, is going to go a long way for you. Yeah. Yep. And the 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 other tool I'll throw in, because I don't think I spent all thousand dollars with what I described, would be to think about your work surface and maybe get something like a Bora centipede, which is a collapsible. Uh, yeah. Um, a collapsible uh, work work surface support or a work stand, I guess is what they call it. Mm-hmm. And that with a, you know, piece of melamine or a half sheet of plywood, and you can easily set up a work surface that, that you can put your miter saw on or uh, bring the work up to you um, and then collapse it down and, and fold it away and put it away when not in use. So yeah. Those are fairly inexpensive and, and pretty handy and well-reviewed from what I understand. So, all right. We all turn it back to you. All right. So for my second question, this is from Ben. I think it's Vinge or Vinjay. I'm not exactly sure. So, Ben, I'm sorry about that. But, hey, you know who you are. So I'm talking about your question right here. So Ben says, love the podcast. I have a small unheated shop in northern Canada. Yeah, it gets cold. I get it. I've learned, well, I don't get it. I live in Alabama, so I don't really necessarily get it. I've learned that during the, yeah, it gets sweltering hot here. I've learned that during the winter months, I need to bring in all of my glues and finishes as they don't respond well to freezing. I also learned that I also learned the hard way that my warm glue on frozen wood doesn't work either. My question is, how long should the glue set before I can return it to freezing conditions? My guess is that he's bringing it into his house or in a heated or cooled uh, situation and, and gluing and assembling inside. I usually try to wait 24 hours, but this can create long delays in projects and fills my house with glue glue up panels. Also, is there a type of glue that would work best in freezing conditions? CA glue works fine but isn't strong enough for panel glue-ups or assembly. Ben. Oh, uh, he said, I I missed a sentence. He said, my question is how long... No, I did get that before I can return to freezing conditions. Uh, I would wait 24 hours if you're using conventional PVA glue. Uh, And the reason is because I wait 24 hours for all glue to set. I almost never... Or I I wait overnight at the very least. Um... But I almost never wait like the hour and then start. And I don't think it's it's a very good idea to do that, to wait only an hour to start working on the material. You know, there there's the other issue is that if you start removing the glue and sanding within or only an hour of that glue uh, drying, you get this issue of the glue kind of like creeping and the moisture kind of e- evaporating or, or releasing from the wood. And so then if you sand it down and it's smooth, then suddenly you get this swell of where that glue joint was. Uh, me personally, I think 24 hours is, I mean, I just wait 24 hours or overnight. Uh, I understand that that does delay things, but I'd rather be safe than sorry. But in terms of an alternative for you, Ben would possibly think about using hide glue. And the reason why I say this is because if you're using hide glue, like tight bond hide glue or old brown glue, the way that you keep that from spoiling or staying good for a long period of time is you refrigerate it and then you warm it up in a warm water bath. And so even if it's cold, you're going to be able to warm it up. And that is the normal way to get that glue into a thinner consistency, a less viscous consistency. So my thought is hide glue might be a pretty good solution for you because you, generally speaking, you would keep it cold to preserve it. So you keep it in your fridge. And when you need it, you, you basically put in like a, have you ever seen those like mini crock pots for like oh, yeah. sauces? You know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. You can put it in that. And that's like a perfect warming situation for your hide glue. Um, Another uh, hide glue alternative would be if you were to buy the um, the hide glue pellets and you can mix it yourself in like a little double boiler type deal. Yeah. Is it a little bit more work? Yeah. But you're also in northern Canada, so you might require a little bit more more work to to do that kind of glue up because you're in a, you know, unusually uh, cold environment. Right. So uh, 
how about you, Brian? What do you, what do you think in his situation? Oof, like 24 would, hours or how do you feel about that? I would, I would probably look for a condo in Florida for <laughs> woodworking. No. Yeah, snowbirds. So when we talk about cold, it says on the Google, the most authoritative source out there, that oh, wow. temperatures regularly dip to minus 22 degrees Fahrenheit and colder in northern Canada, which whew, I cannot even imagine, minus 22 Fahrenheit regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, admittedly, I don't, I don't have much experience, so take this advice for what it's worth, um, but not much experience with having to try to do uh, any sort of glue up in, in that type of cold. Um, the little bit of research I did ahead of time, though, uh, seemed to indicate that an epoxy, and even a two-part epoxy, tends to be a good adhesive for wood in in cold, extra cold uh, climates. Yeah. It, it, we does that ring true with you at all? Yeah. So I know epoxy, is especially like uh, like. The ones I've used, like West Systems, Moss Epoxies, they're exothermic, so they're giving off heat. Um, so actually, warmer conditions make it set up faster. Yeah. So colder conditions actually makes it set up a little bit, uh, uh, extends the setup time, right? Yeah. Uh, from, so a, from a reliability of the bond, though. It yeah, seemed to be the the websites that I was looking at seemed to speak more to that and just where like a like a water based wood glue might might not handle that cold weather quite as well and lose some of the bits. Bonding yes, yeah, I I completely agree. I think I think your two part epoxies are probably going to be a lot more forgiving with those cold conditions in terms of bond strength. So yeah. that, that, that's what you're asking, right? Yeah. 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 I would agree with that. I would agree with that assessment. Yeah, for yeah. sure. For sure. Uh, now in terms of regular PVA glue, if he were to glue up inside with regular PA, PVA glue, how long do you think you would wait before you kind of expose it out? My daughter's now screaming. <laughs> how long do you think you would wait before then bringing it back outside to your workbench where it's a little bit, uh, colder. Um, if I would say, I would start with whatever the recommended time is for it, and then you, um, then you might even try stress testing those panels a little bit, just to try to get a sense for, you know, let's say the, um, let's say you know it recommends twenty four hours to to dry. If you do that and then you go and you stress that joint, maybe a couple blows with a mallet along the glue line. 24 hours later, if it seems to be holding up well to that, then maybe the 24 hours is sufficient. But if you're still finding that it's it's still curing or still still setting up and you're not getting that bonding strength that you're after, you might just, you know, stretch it to 30 hours, 36 hours, 48 hours and see if that makes any difference and see if you can use in a little trial and error, um, find that sweet spot for for how long it's going to take. Yeah, yeah. No, you you bring up a good point there. Is test don't guess. It's actually uh, Eric Reason, one of the guys who uh, uh, the uh, guys who uh, hosted on the uh, above. Uh, what is it? Above the grain. Oh, I can't remember what was guys' old podcast. Um, again, against the grain. Against the grain, above the grain, against the grain. Yeah, Eric Reason. Uh, he was huge into finishing, or he still is huge into finishing, and. His uh his main motto is guests don't test. So yeah, mm. you know, glue it up, wait twenty four hours, test that joint. You know, it's simple panel glue up or whatnot, and and yeah, that's gonna be the best way to find out what length of time is needed for that glue to properly completely cure in your indoor environment before you bring it outdoors, uh, or not outdoors, but out in your shop in your cold yep. shop, but. Ben, we hope that helps you. Um, you know, we hope we brought you a couple of alter- gluing glue alternatives that might help you uh, in the future. Uh, yep. And with that, Brian, you got the next question, man. All right, this one is from uh, Goran Eliasson. He says, "Goran says hi again, guys, and thank you for continuing continuing to make the best woodworking podcast." Well, thank you, Goran. I have an eight-inch benchtop 
style crummy planar joiner thicknesser combo machine. The cheap ones you find in lots of colors. It has straight blades and quite short in and out feed tables. I also have an Axminster AT330ST thicknesser, large lunchbox style, 300 millimeter, 330 millimeter capacity with a spiral cutter head. Mm-hmm. I generally do my edge joining on the table saw with a sled. First question. When do you choose to skip plane instead of face joining the board first? And second, would you do it differently with my setup? Thanks again, Goran from Nomad Mix. So um, first question, when do you choose to skip plane instead of face joining the board first? So for me, it, I I tend to, one, look at the, the board and is it is it twisted? Is it you know, significantly um, bowed Mm -hmm. to where I think face joining to flatten it out is going to be necessary. And to the extent that you're able to hand select your lumber ahead of time, that makes such a big difference. And not just looking for boards that are, um, you know, devoid of twist or any any significant uh, warping, but boards that have a grain direction that is going to play well with, with your tools. So if you've got if you've got straight knives on your on your joiner, and then but you've got the helical on the planer, then you're probably going to be fine because it's okay if it if your joiner beats it up a little bit because you can you can um, recover when you take it back over to the planer with the spiral cutter head there. Um, but yeah, I would I would look at it if it if it does have quite a bit of you know twist or or um, bow to it, then I would face join it. Um, I only got my first joiner a little over a year ago. So for several years, yeah, for several years, I was just, I was potato chip in, potato chip out. Uh, like you said earlier, we, and I, I honestly don't even know if, if I knew enough about woodworking at the time to realize that all I was doing was just making the board thinner and that it wasn't actually doing anything. (laughs) But I was using but, but yeah, but is, it's smooth. It's, it's smooth. So smooth when it comes out the other end. But, but the thing of it was, is I was doing, I was doing so much. I was using pretty much exclusively four quarter material um, yeah. from the mill. That if I was in into a longer board, I mean, as long as I had something to to capture it with or a way to pin it down, you know, I seemed to find some creative ways in assembly to to hold things together and keep them at least flat enough. I, and flat enough is, is an important concept here too. You know, it's, there are times where flatness is really, really important. And there are other times where flat enough is, is good enough. Yeah. Um, Yeah, for sure. For sure. One of the other, one of the other pieces of advice, I don't remember who told me this the first time. I mean, it's not original to them. This, I think pretty common, pretty common advice, uh, for woodworkers is that the best way to flatten a board is to make it smaller. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Yes. So if you have, you know, if you've got, you know, a couple of 20 inch pieces that you need to yield out of, you know, an eight foot long board to start with, break it down into, break it down into those pieces first and Mm -hmm. then, and then do your milling and don't, don't do it, you know, don't run the eight foot board through hoping that it's going to flatten it out or don't try to face joint that eight foot board. If you're going to end up breaking it down into 20 inch sections, a couple of 20 inch sections, uh, eventually anyway. So, um, when you, when you break it down into those smaller pieces, the, the board loses some of the flex, um, and it's that flexibility along the length of it that can make getting a flat face difficult uh, on the joiner. So, um, I've got one or two other thoughts, but we all, I'll turn it over to you and see if you have any advice for him about when, when might you choose to skip plane instead of face joining first? And, um, would you, would you do it the same way that Goran does? And I think he's referring to, to doing the edge joining on the table saw with the sled. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I, I, if I were to, uh, skip plane and instead of face jointing I would do it the way he's saying and then again going to the table saw maybe using some type of straight edge ripping jig if you really wanted to get as true of an edge as possible 
But yeah, uh, I used to skip playing quite a bit. Uh, a lot of that that I, a lot of the instances where I did skip playing was when I was doing some type of uh, ship lapping. Mm -hmm. I, I mentioned that earlier, where having because the boards are thin enough and you have a little flex. And because maybe you're attaching those boards via nails or screws or whatnot. And so you're not so mm -hmm. worried about getting like perfectly like flattened material and yeah. having a little bit of flex actually kind of works to your benefit considering the area that you're putting it in, whether it be on a wall or some type of other not perfectly flat situation, then that's okay. I think it's perfectly fine. Another situation is if I'm making a whole bunch of face frames. Yep. Having a little flex in the material is not necessarily a bad thing because whether you're whether you're pocket holing or you're biscuiting or you're dominoing or whatnot, you know, you're you're attaching that face frame flat to the cabinet carcass. And yep. so really it is the mechanical joint that is taking that flex out. Um, so in that, in those situations, I, I would say not, I wouldn't worry about skip planing. That being said, it's not necessarily that it's either thin material or, uh, uh, material that is, um, long and it's not necessarily that it's thin material or material that's not very wide. It, it pertains to also when I would do that is situations where I don't have to worry about the finished product being a standalone, right? So for instance, like a cabinet door, right? So like, let's say a light divided door. This is a perfect example because I'm, I'm working on some light divided doors right now. And I uh, flattened and planed some material that after I flattened and planed it, one of the boards cupped, right? Mm. Or not, but it, it, it bowed, it bowed, excuse me, it bowed. I can't use that because it's a standalone door. The yep. only way it's attaching to the carcass of the cabinet is through hinges. And those hinges with the little small screws from those hinges is not going to take the flex out of that door, right? Yep. And it's cope and stick joinery. So that flex is going to just pull that corner away from the cabinet. It's going to look terrible, right? Yep. So I right. So I had to go back to rough material. And what I did this time is I flattened, I planed, it was thick, I flattened, planed again, still thick or too thick before it got to final thickness, flattened and plane the third time and it's resting again. And I'm probably going to flatten and plane it a fourth time just to make sure that I've got all the wood movement out of that sucker, right? Because yeah. I'm not going to, I'm, I don't have enough material to do it a, a third time, Yeah, but the second time that being that being said, the material that I already have flattened and plain to final thickness, I'm going to cut it up and I'm going to use it because I can still use smaller sections of that and the flex in the or the flex or the bow that's in the material is not going to be as noticeable because yeah. I've cut it down. So it's really kind of talking about things that you already talked about, just sort mm -hmm. of reinforcing that. So. And then the, the other thing I would add, uh, Goran, is depending on, you know, let's say you're making a, um, you know, a cutting board or something like that. I tend to not be uh, overly, overly diligent with my milling before gluing up the cutting board. And I just I make sure that I at least have one surface of it relatively uh, flat and just allow the thickness planer to take out any imperfections in the glue up. So if you've got boards that are rising above or below, as long as, as long as the one face of it, all four corners touch, that can mm -hmm. be your reference surface when you run it through your planer and, and then you'll be able to, to flip and, and take it off the other side too. So yeah. um, flatness to will matter quite a bit more in a, individual board, you know, being used in a piece of furniture or joinery. So yeah, good point. Good point. All right. We, you're, um, is this the last question? I think it's your last question. Yeah. And 40 minutes has already gone by. Isn't that crazy? So this is from Matt, uh, Dan in Madison, Illinois. Great podcast. I am looking for your opinions on a good set of Brad point drill bits that won't break the bank. I've been using a set from Harbor freight. And I would like to start to step up in quality. 
I'm a hobbyist woodworker who doesn't need the best, just decent quality. Any ideas? Dan. So, Dan, I know what you're talking about. Let me tell you why I know what you're talking about. Because I have a pair, a set of those Harbor Freight Brad Point bits. They're not very good. (laughs) Now, the normal titanium nitrile nitride bits that uh, the twist bits that Harbor Freight has, I probably go through a set or an index of those once every two years. They're relatively inexpensive. I do every sort of uh, indoor and outdoor DIY project, uh, throw them against the wall, drop them on the floor, everything. And those are perfectly fine. Those Harbor Freight twist bits are fine. No big deal. They break. I'm not crying too much about it. But the Brad Point bits, I'm crying not because of how much I paid for them, but because they're not very good. The points on them are not concentric with the rest of the drill bit. So whenever I used those Harbor Freight Brad Point bits, I would get the point in the all hole that I had created, and it would just uh. like twist and, and, and look like a random orbital sander. <laughs> As it would like twist the bit around. Um, so what I did was I got a pair of a set of Woodcraft Brad Point bits. And I think they were on sale for 60 or $70. I mean, you know, the price of things has gone up. So that was like five years ago that I bought them. And I still have them and they're great. They're good quality. They work fine. Um, I would check either Rockler or Woodcraft. I think Fish, F-I-S-C-H, is a good brand. They are a little bit more expensive, although I have seen them for $75 recently on Amazon. Um, But typically, they're about $100. That might be a little bit above your budget, but I would look at Woodcraft or Rockler for their uh, Brad Point bits. They tend to be pretty good. I haven't tried the Rockler ones, but I, I would imagine that they're kind of on par with woodcraft how about you brian what do you got for brad point bits do you use brad point bits i do yeah so i have uh, about this time last year i bought um a budget set from uh taylor tool works or taytools.com and i got the colt and riss riss tools uh twin land brad point drill bit set so it was seven piece set uh from an eighth to a to a half inch and it, mm-hmm. I, think, I think I paid, you know, around $20 for, for the seven, for the seven bits. They are, they are serviceable. Um, I don't use them a whole lot, but I, I guess they've proven, they've proven to be serviceable. Yeah. You said 20 bucks for seven. Yeah. About 20 bucks. I think is what I ended up paying for them. That's not um, bad. They're on sale. They're on closeout right now for 1499. So, well, there you go. Dan, you might check that out because if they're yeah. serviceable, that means they're usable. I mean, the yeah. Harbor Freight set that I had is not usable. Now, now, mind you, Dan, you might have had better luck with the Harbor Freight ones than I did, but the ones I had, I can't. They're pretty much just a garbage set, and I don't yeah. care what happens to them. But yeah, for for decent quality, I mean, I think I think yeah, like I mentioned, the the Colton Riss uh, Point bits will be will be serviceable and. If you really want to step it up uh, from the Harbor Freight, going with like the fish uh, brand, like we mentioned, you know, yeah. would be a way to do it. Yep. Yep. So. Well, Brian, that's all the questions. What do you got going on in the shop, man? I have not been in my shop for almost two weeks. We went down to Red River Gorge for an anniversary trip my wife and I did. So that did that on uh Friday that I would normally have been uh, working in the shop. So um, I am uh, queued up to do quite a bit of woodworking this weekend. Um, I've got a nine and a half foot long desktop that I have to build. So nice. Um, might actually be going over to Guy's shop to do that one. So what species? Ash. Ash. Okay. You, you guys work with quite a bit of ash, don't you? We do. Yeah, we do at work and it's, it's still, uh, still, available and pretty, pretty good supply. Um, last, we got a price update from our vendor at work um, two weeks ago or so. And it, I mean, it's actually, we're seeing four quarter 
or five quarter, six quarter, and eight quarter all start to trend up in price. So yeah. um, whether or not that's indicative of of the end of supply uh, starting to draw closer, who knows? But um, we usually get it for around you know four to four fifty a board foot. So that's not bad. Yeah. That's pretty good for ash. Yeah. 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 But what about you? What are you working on? Man, I have been vacationing just like you. So we took a family vacation to Florida. My sister opened up a sandwich shop in Melbourne, Florida. It's a Vietnamese sandwich shop. So by the way, if you're interested in some really good Vietnamese sandwiches and you're around Melbourne, Florida or the Orlando area, you might want to check up Bun Me Saigon Baguette. I don't know why they have such a long name. <laughs> it's the <laughs> most difficult name ever. But you know what? <laughs> Bun Me Saigon Baguette. I mean, you know what? It's catchy, right? I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're doing really well. So we went to see their grand opening. But the, we also went to Orlando for Disney for a little Disney trip that uh, my wife found a deal on that they were running a special on. So we did that. Um, and in the midst of that, my son also got an ear infection. So we. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about, right? You've been there. You've been there. You've been there. Yeah, you know, 103 spiked fever at like nine o'clock at night. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was pretty rough, but we got that all done. I'm back in the shop. Um, I've been doing a lot of maintenance stuff as of late because I had been away from the shop. And so, you know, I'm just kind of touching up a lot of work surfaces, trying to maintain my equipment and just check it up on a lot of things uh, because I'm about to make a couple of these light divided doors. I know I talked about them last week or two ep- uh, an episode ago, but the the issue that I came across was exactly what I talked about earlier is that I milled and flattened some, or I flattened and planed some material that I thought was going to maintain its flatness and it ended up bowing, uh, cupping mm. up, uh, bowing on me. And so I ended up having to uh, uh, replane, remill some material, reflatten, replane some material. And in which case now what I'm doing is I'm just slowly taking off material, yeah. uh, you know, starting from an inch and a half going down to an inch. And, you know, this is going to be a four part process just to make sure that I've got all of that flexion in the material, all the tension in the material yeah. releasing appropriately and not releasing, you know, all at once at the last milling session. Do you, do you think that when that board bowed on you, was that... Was that an anomaly, do you think? Or um, I guess as you're going through and, and doing this again a second time and taking some additional passes and giving it a bit more time, like are you still seeing much wood movement from uh, milling session to milling session? So I'm, I'm pretty tolerant of a little bit of wood movement. You know, I mean, you know, a little here, a little there, a 30 seconds really not – I mean, we're talking like it moved, it cut, it bowed like a half an inch from end to end. I was like, what happened here? Yeah, That's I- never happened to me before, but there's always a first for everything, right? And so this was an instance. Now, here's the funny thing, right? So I was making two styles. The styles are the vertical, right? Yeah, I was making, is that right? Styles are vertical. I can never, I can never remember. I can never remember. But anyway, the styles, I was making, yes, the styles are vertical. Yeah, I was making two styles, so that they were long because they they were two, uh, they were light divided doors that are about fifty eight inches tall, oh, give wow. or take. Yeah, so they're pretty long. And what I did was I made it out of one board and I ripped that board in half. And after I ripped that board in half, that's when all the problems came about. It, what I should have done is I should have rough cut it in half and milled it from there because as I was milling it as one solid piece, mm. no wood movement, looked perfectly fine, everything was good. Ripped it in half and then went it through the planer to, uh, to take it to final width and boing, it just yeah. went like this way and that way. Now, here's the funny part, right? This is a six-inch wide piece. My final dimension for those styles is two and three quarter inches, right? So six inches, I you know, I got about a quarter of an inch either side and yeah. plenty of working room, right? So I split it in half when I got it down to six inches. One board, one one of the three inch style or two and seven eighths inch styles because, you know, I've got the curve of the saw blade, perfectly fine. Didn't move at all. 
the other one, same board. Boing! And I'm like, how does that? Yeah, it's hilarious. You know, six inch wide board split in half. One of them is fine. The other one is, you know, got a half inch bow in it. Ridiculous. Don't know how it happened. And so, uh, you know, ultimately, because I want those styles to match and to have that beautiful, like, matching grain. Yeah. I went ahead and just, I'm just going to use those for the muntins, the individual dividers between the light divided doors. And I just, I just milled up some new rails and styles. Yeah. But this time I rough cut it to three inches wide from the same board, mind you, but three inches wide on the bandsaw and then milled it through. Uh, See, you know, man, we're always learning, right? Always learning. So now I know best practice, go ahead and just rip it on the bandsaw first before you, you know, do it uh, on the table saw when you're getting really close to final thickness or final width. Yeah. Yeah. I learned my lesson. So good deal. Yeah. Well, that does it for this episode. We want to thank everyone who has left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps us in the search rankings. And of course, we truly appreciate the support and the feedback. And please remember, this podcast is here to answer questions from the woodworking community. That's you guys. So please keep sending in your questions. You guys have been great about that. Uh, yeah. And also thank you for everybody uh, that's been leaving us a five-star review. Thank you everybody. That's uh that's a patron on our Patreon account. We really appreciate it. And so, uh, so if you have woodworking questions, like we said, you know, you can send those questions through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com, or you can DM us through Instagram at, Woodshop Life. And you can reach me at alabamawoodworker.com. Brian, where can we reach you? No social media for me, but you're you're a good man. You're I'm a good a, man. I'm a ghost. I'm a ghost. Um no, but uh every once in a while I'll, I'll post a project on uh Sean's uh simplecove.com website at Brian Schmidt. Yeah. All right. So uh We'll talk to you in a couple weeks, and hopefully Guy will be back. Guy's on vacation. You went on vacation the week before, then I went on vacation, then Guy's on vacation this week. Summertime. Yep. Summertime. All All right. right. Talk to you later, man. See you later. Bye. Bye.